This morning, our scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, and as most of you are aware, we have been steadily working our way through the book of Acts, and today it's Acts chapter 16. We're reading together verses 16 through 34. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews. They are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Last November, at Christie's auction house, a painting went on sale. The painting is known as Salvador Mundi, Savior of the World. It was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. We have a record of it first appearing in the collection of James I of England somewhere between 1600 and 1649. We don't hear too much more about the painting until 1763 when it was sold, and then it disappeared to around 1900. It was discovered again for sale in 1958, But by that time, its connection with da Vinci was long past. The hair and face of Jesus had been overpainted, and its provenance was forgotten entirely. It was sold in 1958 for around $100. The family who had it put it at the top of the stairs in their home so that as they climbed to bed at night, they passed it on the way. It was discovered again in 2005. 
it was purchased as part of an estate sale, and eventually it came up for auction once more. Last November, when it was repaired and restored and put on the market, it was sold for $450 million. And my question is this. Can you imagine what it was like to visit parents or grandparents and see this picture sitting at the top of the stairs when you went off to bed at night? It was just hanging there. It was just something the family had and they had no idea of its significance or intrinsic value. None. It was, for all intents and purposes, ignored. Today, as we come to Acts chapter 16, we are coming to one of the most dramatic, exciting, packed episodes in the entire book of Acts, and that's saying something given that Acts starts with Pentecost Sunday. And Paul and Silas are about to discover that God was at work in a spectacular fashion. And initially, they could not understand the value and significance of what God was doing. And so come with me as we seek to immerse ourselves in what is an extraordinary chapter. The latter part of our study today will focus on the passage we read together, and the first part will hopefully provide a background to where we are. So if you've got your Bible, keep it open at 16 and go back to verse 6. And we didn't read this passage, so you'll be seeing this for the first time. And so we're reading at 16.6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And notice what comes next. These are crucial words for understanding this chapter. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, isn't that just strange? At the end of the Gospels, Jesus says, go out into all the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing, making disciples. And right here in Acts 16, verse 6, we discover the Holy Spirit says, no, stop. And he will not let them preach the gospel in Asia. And that just seems odd. And then notice the rest of the passage. What comes next? Verse 7, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Now, do you grasp the enormity of what's going on here? Here were Paul and Silas responding to God's call upon their life. They were going to visit churches to equip and encourage them, and suddenly the Holy Spirit says no. And so they've run into a barrier, and they can't go any further. And so they naturally think, well, what is the next step? Maybe we should head in this direction. They go off in that direction. And again, the passage says, the Spirit of Jesus forbids them to do that. And so it's no. Now, if you have ever found yourself in a situation, and it may be seeking promotion at work, it may be looking to buy a new house, it could be all sorts of things, and you have prayed and prayed and prayed, and it seems that God is leading you in one direction, and then suddenly there's a barrier, and you think, wow, was 
the Lord not listening? Did I misunderstand his leading and his guiding and his answered prayer? Then you think, well, maybe I did. So what is the next direction? And so you go and you head off in another direction. And then second time, he stops you once again. And so twice in quick succession, Paul and Silas are sensing God saying no. And if you've been looking to move to a new house and it's no, you've been looking for promotion and it's no, you're seeking to start a family, it's no. What do you do? Well, Paul and Silas are about to discover this, that God's seeming rejection twice in quick succession is not so much rejection, but merely redirection. Now, if you're taking down notes this morning, or you've got a margin in your Bible, it might be worth jotting down. It is not always rejection, but often redirection. Stopped them going this way, stopped them going that way. In fact, he was hemming them in because his purposes and his plans were so much greater and richer and fuller than anything Paul or Silas could begin to imagine. And here was God drawing them in, restraining them so they wouldn't go this way and wouldn't go that way, but would follow where he was calling them to go. Now, having said all that, Let's continue with the passage. I'm now reading, and you see this. For, this is the first time this appears in Scripture. Chapter 16, verse 10. They've moved to Troas. Paul has had a vision of a man from Macedonia in the night, and the man is saying, come to us. And that was God's redirection. Paul simply couldn't see it in the beginning. He had no understanding of the value or significance of what was happening. He seemed to be following the next natural step, and here was God pushing them to Troas. And so, having had a vision during the night, the man from Macedonia says, come on over to us. And then at verse 10, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, why is that significant? It's significant for this reason. This is the first time we read the word we. Look at it again, verse 10. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready. Jump down to verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea. Verse 12, from there, we traveled to Philippi. The latter part of verse 12, and we stayed there several days. Verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city where we expected to find a place of prayer, and we sat down. And what New Testament scholars are telling us is this, that here for the first time, we come across these we passages, and it means this, Luke was there. You are reading Luke's diary. He was an eyewitness. He was watching it unfold. Remember when we talked about the map, the places like Neapolis and Philippi and Bithynia and Mysia and Galatia and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and all the other towns? These are real towns, real cities, real people, real lives. This is why Luke is known as the historian of the New Testament because he records in considerable detail all that took place. And so we see it right here. And we know from the testimony, Luke was there. How do you think Paul and Silas would be feeling? I think initially disappointed 
because they'd prayed and planned and prepared for several weeks. They were looking forward to all that God was doing here and there, and then He refused to let them go. And suddenly they find themselves on a course they had never anticipated. Now they're in Troas, and they're about to do what? They're about to cross into Europe. And the gospel was about to go into Europe for the first time. And I think amidst the initial disappointment of God saying, not here and not here, now Paul is beginning to realize the value and worth and significance of what God was doing, that his hopes and plans and dreams were much greater than he had imagined, than Paul had imagined. Then, of course, they get to Philippi. Why is that important? That's important for this reason. Not only was the gospel beginning to impact Europe through Philippi, but we discover that Philippi was what's known as a Roman colony. It was a major trading city. It had large roads going through both north and south, east and west. Latin language was used. Roman law controlled administration and taxes. For all intents and purposes, this is the closest you would get to being in Rome itself was to be in Philippi. It is a large, popular, influential city. And Paul does what he often does. He goes to the large centers of population, seeks to establish a church, and then move on. And he, as you well know, often went to the synagogue when he first arrived in a city. But in Philippi, there was no synagogue. You needed 12 Jewish males and their families to establish a synagogue. And there weren't 12. But what does the passage tell us? It tells us this, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered. And one of those listening was a new woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. In other words, God had been at work in Lydia's life up to this point. Then you have this wonderful phrase, the Lord opened her heart. And Lydia is the first convert on European soil. She's a wealthy lady, probably because of her trade in purple cloth. She owns a home in the city. She invites Paul and Silas back for dinner. She introduces them to her friends. And so the gospel begins to impact individuals and families. The rest of the passage, and let me try and summarize, and this is the passage we read together. Paul and Silas are now beginning to influence the lives of individuals. The gospel is at work, transforming, changing lives. And this young girl who could uh, predict the future, it would seem, making a lot of money for those who were running that business, and Paul and Silas deal with her. They are then, what happens? They are then arrested, beaten, flogged, and incidentally, you are not allowed to flog a Roman citizen, and that comes up later in the passage, and so the authorities were in trouble, but they didn't know that early on. So Paul and Silas are arrested and thrown into prison. Now, my question is this. After the initial excitement of coming into Europe, watching the gospel change lives, 
how do you think Paul and Silas would be feeling after they'd been beaten, stripped, flogged, and put in the stocks? If it was me, I think I'd be a little discouraged. I think I'd be downhearted. I think I would be sitting there with my ankles in the stocks, feeling absolutely miserable, back covered with lacerations and bleeding, and thinking, Father, what is going on? Did I really hear you when you stopped us going there and you stopped us going there? Did I just imagine that vision from the man in Macedonia who called us over into Philippi? And Paul and Silas model for us one of the cardinal principles of about maturity in the faith. And it's this. If you're taking notes, please get it down. Providence has servants everywhere. There are moments when God will take you through challenging and difficult situations when, if I can use a metaphor, He's taking you through deep water, not in order to drown you, but in order to cleanse you. And what is going on with Paul and Silas? Paul and Silas find themselves in a situation where there is, humanly speaking, no hope. No hope. But not only do they have a profound, deep, abiding faith in the providence and sovereign purposes of God, they also understand this. And this is a crucial question for any of us facing difficult days. Is God sufficient to handle what you're facing? Not only providence is at work, but the grace of God is invincible. The grace of God is invincible, so much so that Paul and Silas are doing, and some of you are fed up with me saying this, I've been saying it multiple times the last 18 months, they are doing the spiritual things naturally and the natural things spiritually. It was almost an instinctive response for Paul and Silas in the stocks, badly beaten, publicly disgraced. They look at each other, and what do they do? They pray, and they bring praise to God, because they know that's where they will find solace and comfort, and the providence of God is at work. And more than that, the grace of God is invincible, and all of that is impacting the lives of Paul and Silas, and all of that we know. Now, let me try and sum all of this up and apply it in the closing five minutes or so that we have left. Now, allow me, please, to ask for your patience and a little mercy and maybe even forgiveness for what I'm about to say next. Last Thursday evening, I settled down to watch national news, and I was flicking through the channels, I came across the Senate hearings for U.S. Supreme Court nominee Judge Kavanaugh. And I freely confess that as I sat there, I found it very difficult to take in all 
that was happening. My emotions moved from astonishment to wonder to deep sadness to prayers to tears to shame. Is this how we treat testimony in the 21st century? That we allow every squalid accusation to be probed and examined and to be broadcast live across the nation? Is that who we are? Does that define us? I felt so bad for Dr. Ford and for Judge Kavanaugh. And the only saving grace in the whole squalid broadcast was when the judge talked of his 10-year-old daughter who, settling down to bed one evening recently, said to her parents and her sister, maybe we should pray for the lady involved. light and insight and truth and revelation coming from a ten-year-old when all of the other discussion and cross-examination produced more heat than light. And it's a ten-year-old who speaks prophetically into our nation. Maybe we need to pray for the lady involved. Is that where we are? Surely we can do better than this. Surely it is not beyond our political will to sequester witnesses and take testimony behind closed door. Do we need to rush in front of a camera for polarization and expediency in a soundbite? culture? Is that what we are feeding? Is that the frenzied culture of a 21st century setting? Is that who we are? I think we need to say that we are men and women of grace, and our culture and our society matters, and that we will not marginalize character and integrity and honesty and prayer. It matters. And that's not who we are. We are better than that. Because we as the people of God are called to this day and this age. And we are called to rise above it. And we're called to be people of integrity and character and honesty. We're called to say there is a better way than this. And we will not become involved in the sordid details that we saw last week. God, Lord, save us from this stuff. Enable us, please, O oh God, help us to do the natural things spiritually and the spiritual things naturally, to be men and women of grace and forgiveness, men and women who stand for truth with tenderness and love. That's who we are, a profound dependency on the providence and grace of God. It is time for us to say we whole 
wholeheartedly as a nation reject what we saw last week and say to our political leaders, please take action and stop this. By all means, get to the truth. Please, we will pray for them doing that. But do we need it broadcast so seven and eight-year-olds are having it in our living rooms? And finally, what do we say? Tomorrow, thankfully, is a brand new day and a brand new week and a brand new month. And as Christian people, let us go into tomorrow, our heads held high, hoping for better days, hoping that we will be men and women of grace, hoping that we will challenge the sordid and the ugly and the distasteful, recognizing that sin is all of these things, but we stand against it, and we stand against it firmly because we believe and are absolutely convinced that providence has servants everywhere, that we can depend on the grace of Almighty God, which is invisible. And when we have a profound dependency on His grace, His leading, His answered prayer, His watching over us as a nation, it is much more valuable than any da Vinci painting because He is the Savior of the world. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all that we have learned this morning. Enable us, please, by your grace, to be men and women who will live for you, who will care for and pray for our families, our communities, our nation. Enable us, please, to stay close to you and to once again be able to say, I am thine, O Lord. Father, work in us and enable us by your grace to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.